0: Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. In April 2018, in the city of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, A driver chose to take his van and run it into a crowd of people on a busy street in North York, a section of Toronto. The result of that were 10 people died and 15 people were seriously injured. Many people have not recovered from that event. The CBC national news entitled the national had a story about two of the survivors and chatted about the psychological and physical scars that an incident like that leaves with those who survive. This morning, I want to talk with you a bit about a piece of liturgy, um, a piece of um, Jewish prayer that tries to respond to these events, the unknown tragedies, the tragedies that cannot be um, predicted and in most cases can't be prevented. All of us recognize that... There are um, events of which we are unable to control that impact on our lives. Small events like being sick, large events like catching cancer, events as I've described in April 2018, or events like 9 11. They impact not only those who are direct uh, participants in the events, but their friends and family. There are many approaches to this. Some people place the conversation under the large rubric of um, why do the uh, good suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? I don't want to uh, respond to that question this morning, but I want to respond more directly through the usage of a piece of liturgy that is part of the Jewish High Holidays that asks the worshiper, that asks the participant in the liturgy to consider how life is rarely in our control. And I thought I'd begin um, this conversation this morning with sharing with you a piece of poetry written by the great poet and songwriter Leonard Cohn of Montreal, Canada. Leonard Cohn wrote a piece entitled Who By Fire. It goes like this, who by fire, who by water, Who in the sunshine, who in the nighttime, who by high ordeal, who by common trial, who in your merry, merry month of May, who by very slow decay and who shall I say is calling and who in her lonely slip, who by barbiturate, who in these realms of love and who by power, something blunt and who by avalanche, who by powder. Who for his greed and who for his hunger, who shall I say is calling? And who by brave ascent, who by accident, who in solitude, who in his mirror? Who by his lady's command and who by his own hand? Who in mortal chains who in power, and who shall I say is calling, and who shall I say is calling? And who by fire, who by water? Who in the sunshine and who in the nighttime, who by high ordeal? who by common trial, who in your very merry month of May, who by very slow decay, and who shall I say is calling, and who shall I say is calling. Certainly a piece of poetry placed to music that many of you are familiar with. But what you may not be familiar with is that on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the two holy days of the Jewish people, there is a prayer chanted while the Torah ark is open and the congregation is standing, that the ark scroll Moxor calls one of the most stirring compositions in the entire liturgy of the Days of Awe. Now, let me read parts of it to you so that you have a sense of where uh, Leonard Cone um, derived part of his theology. The concepts of which you'll hear written within the prayer come from Jewish apocalyptic literature, and some scholars would say parallel Christian writings based on similar sources, the most famous of which is the Deus Irei, Day of Wrath, found in the Requiem Mass, which offers a vivid description of the Day of Judgment for all humankind. The name of this prayer that I'm referring to in the Jewish tradition is Unatana We shall ascribe holiness to this day. In the the Unatana Tokif, the subject is not the final judgment, but the more immediate yearly day of judgment, Rosh Hashanah, and then Yom Kippur. And so this is how the Hebrew poem translated sounds in English, I want you to hold, I hope you can, the uh, Leonard Cone, who by fire, who by water. Here's how it goes. We shall ascribe holiness to this day, for it is awesome and terrible. Your kingship is exalted upon it. Your throne is established in mercy. You are enshrined upon it in truth. In truth, you are the judge, the exhorter, the all-knowing witness, who He who inscribes and seals, remembering all that is forgotten. You open the book of remembrance, which proclaims itself, and the seal of each person is there. The great shofar is sounded. A still small voice is heard. The angels are dismayed. They are seized by fear and trembling as they proclaim. Behold the day of judgment, for all the hosts of heaven are brought for judgment. They shall not be guiltless in your eyes, and all creatures shall parade before you as a troop, as shepherds herds his flock, causing his sheep to pass beneath his staff. So do you cause to pass, count, and record, visiting the souls of all the living, decreeing the length of their days, inscribing their judgment. On Rosh Hashanah it is inscribed, and on Yom Kippur it is sealed, how many shall pass away? And how many shall be born? Who shall live and who shall die? Who shall reach the end of his days and who shall not? Who shall perish by water and who by fire? Who by sword and who by wild beast? Who by famine and who by thirst? Who by earthquake and who by plague? Who by strangulation and who by stoning? Who shall have rest and who shall wander? Who shall be in peace? peace and who shall be pursued, who shall be at rest and who shall be tormented, who shall be exalted and who shall be brought low, who shall become rich and who shall be impoverished. But repentance, prayer, and righteousness mitigate the severe decree. Well, many think that this poem is the pinnacle of the holy day liturgies, the poet has painted a picture of the most solemn day of the year, which to him is Rosh Hashanah, not Yom Kippur. All other concepts associated with the day have been stripped away. Awesome and terrible are the only fitting words to describe it. The poet's primary concern is with what the Mishnah um, says is that the first day of the month of Tishrei, the first day of the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar, is the day when humanity is judged. And the writer, the author, fills in the details that the Mishnah only hints at as to spread before us in a terrifying spectacle of heaven and earth called to judgment. But this is not a day of suffering without hope. No matter what one has done, says the poet, the decree, the penalty of death, can be mitigated. Indeed, one need only follow the advice of the sages. Three things cancel the decree, and they are prayer, charity, and repentance. This teaching is not meant to suggest that the person who prays or the person who gives charity or the person repents can avoid the decrees, only that the decree is mitigated think about that we do acknowledge how little we control in life and how there are unexpected events when the poet, when the writer of liturgy says who shall die by water and who shall die by fire we do not know that As I speak to you, there are many individuals in the southern American states waiting for Hurricane Florence to hit the coast of North Carolina and perhaps south of that. Some will die. It was not, according to this piece of liturgy, because they were evil. It was not because they had done something wrong. It was simply the nature of life that we do not live forever, and that our lives, if devoted to prayer, repentance, and charity, in and of themselves have meaning, regardless of how we die. It's a very powerful concept in Judaism. There is a further note of hope expressed in this poem God is depicted as a merciful judge who understands the frail nature of human beings. The pathetic description of the transitory nature of life and of the heart-rending comparison between eternal God and human beings who are no more than a dream that flies away, or a speck of dust that is gone with the wind is not intended to depress us, but to impress God as it were and make him God inclined towards Forgiving us. Now, this poem, which has been part of the Jewish liturgy for thousands of years, gave birth to an interesting legend. And the legend, of course, tells us much about the impact of the prayer on the Jewish community. So, this is the story of the origins of the prayer. It's associated with Rabbi Amnon of Mainz, who lived somewhere, well, this Hebrew year is considered 5779, and Rabbi Amnon was um, assumed to have lived around seven, uh, 5750. So that would mean Rabbi Amnon lived somewhere around 1,100 years ago. Here's the story as told about Rabbi um, Amnon of Mainz. Now, remember, I've told you that it's a story, um, and that um, though it has been passed down in tradition, (laughs) certainly... um, Not everyone uh, believes that that is the origin of the story. So let me share the uh, story with you. More than 800 years ago, there lived a great man in the city of Mainz. His name was Rabbi Amnon, a great scholar and a very pious man. Rabbi Amnon was loved and respected by Jews and non-Jews alike, and his name was known far and wide. Even the Duke of Hessen... The ruler of the land admired and respected Amnon for his wisdom, learning, and piety. Many a time, the duke invited the rabbi to his palace and consulted him on matters of state. Rabbi Amnon never accepted any reward for his services to the duke or to the state. From time to time, however, Rabbi Amnon would ask the duke to ease the position of the Jews in his land, to abolish some of the decrees and restrictions which existed against the Jews at the time and generally enable them to live in peace and security. This was the only favor that Rabbi Amnon ever requested from the Duke, and the Duke never turned down a request. Thus, Rabbi Amnon and his Jewish community lived peacefully for many years. Now, the other statesmen of the Duke grew envious of Rabbi Amnon. Most envious of them all was the Duke's secretary, who could not bear to see honor and respect which Rabbi Amnon enjoyed with the Duke, and which rapidly developing into a great friendship between the Duke and the rabbi. The secretary began to seek ways and means to discredit Rabbi Amnon in the eyes of the Duke. One day the secretary said to the Duke, "'Your Highness, why should you not persuade Rabbi Amnon to become a Christian like ourselves?' I'm sure that considering the honor and many favors he has enjoyed at your generous hand, he will gladly abandon his faith and accept ours. The Duke thought it was not a bad idea, and when Rabbi Amnon came to his palace the next time, the Duke said to him, My good friend Rabbi, I know that you have been loyal and devoted to me for many years. Now I wish to ask you a personal favor." Abandon your faith and become a good Christian like me. If, I, if you do, I shall make you the greatest man in the whole of Hessen. You shall have honor and riches like no other man, and next to me, you shall be the most powerful person in the land. The Rabbi grew very pale. For a moment, he could find no words to reply to the duke. But after a while, he said, Oh, illustrious monarch, for many years I have served you faithfully, and my being a Jew in no way lessen my loyalty to you or to the state. On the contrary, my faith bids me to be loyal and faithful to the land of my sojourn. I am ready and willing to sacrifice everything I possess, even my very life, for you as well as for the state. There is one thing, however, that I can never part with. That is my faith. I am bound by an unbreakable covenant to my faith, the faith of my forefathers. Do you want me to portray my people, my God? Would you want a man to serve you that has no respect for his religion, for the bonds and ties he holds most sacred? If I betray my God, could you ever trust me never to betray you? Surely the Duke cannot mean it. Surely the Duke is jesting. No, no, the duke said, though he sounded a little uncertain, for inwardly the duke was pleased with the rabbi's response. Rabbi Amnon hoped the matter was settled, but when he arrived at the palace next, the duke repeated his request. Rabbi Amnon became very unhappy and began to avoid visiting the palace unless it was absolutely necessary. One day, the duke, impatient at the rabbi's obstinacy, put it very bluntly to him. He must either become a Christian or suffer the consequences. Pressed to give an answer immediately, Rabbi Amnon begged the duke to allow him three days in which to consider, and the duke granted his wish. No sooner did Amnon leave the duke than he realized his grave sin. My God, he thought, what have I done? Am I lacking in faith and courage that I requested three days for consideration? Can there be any but one answer? How could I show such weakness even for one moment? O gracious, eternal God, forgive me. Rabbi Amnon arrived home brokenhearted. He secluded himself in his room and spent the next three days in prayers and supplication, begging God's forgiveness for even considering this. When Amnon did not arrive at the palace... On the third day, the duke became very angry and ordered his men to bring Rabbi Amnon and change. The duke hardly recognized Rabbi Amnon. So much did the venerable man change in the course of the last three days. However, the duke quickly brushed aside whatever feeling of sympathy might have felt for his erstwhile friend and said to him sternly, "'How dare you disregard my command? "'Why did you not appear before in time to give me your answer?' For your sake, I trusted you have decided to do as I tell you. It will be bad for you otherwise. Although Amnon was now a broken man physically, his spirit was stronger than ever. Your Highness, he answered, there can be but one answer. I shall remain a loyal Jew as long as I breathe. The duke was beside himself with wrath. It is now more than the question of your becoming Christian. You have disobeyed me by not coming voluntarily to give me your answer. For this, you must be punished. Your Highness, Amnon said, by requesting three days for consideration, I have sinned gravely against my God. And these brave words, according to the story, enraged the duke even more. For sinning against your God, the duke said, let him avenge himself. I shall punish you for disobeying my orders. Your legs sinned against me, for they refused to come to me. Therefore, your legs shall be cut off. With very faint signs of life, the legless body of Rabbi Amnon was sent back to his home, to his grief-stricken family. It was the day before Rosh Hashanah, according to this story. The news about Rabbi Amnon's dreadful fate spread throughout the whole city. Everyone was horrified and distressed. It was a very tragic day of judgment for the Jews of Mainz who assembled in the synagogue the following morning. Despite his terrible suffering, Amnon remembered that it was Rosh Hashanah and he requested to be taken to synagogue. He was placed in front of the Holy Ark. All the worshipers, Men and women wept terribly, seeing their beloved rabbi in such agony, and never were any more heartrending prayers offered than on that day of Rosh Hashanah. While the cantor began to recite the additional prayers known as Musaf, Amnon mentioned that there be made an interval while he offered a special prayer to God. Silence fell upon the worshipers, and the rabbi began to recite Unatana Tanah Let us express the mighty holiness of this day. The Ra congregation repeated every word, and their hearts um, went out to God in prayer and tears. When the words, He is our God and no other, were reached, Amnon cried out them with his last remaining strength and passed away. That is the story that is traditionally told about the origins of this prayer. Of course, it's a legend, and of course, it's simply a means by which the Jewish community has um, interpreted the origins of a prayer for which there is no real uh, authorship assigned. Um, but the story and the um, the interpretation that the story offers has entered into the litany of understanding of Jewish uh, prayer of course um, many people specifically scholars, um, believe that Rabbi Colonimus ben Meshulam, who lived in the latter part of the 11th century, one of the great scholars and liturgists of Mainz, wrote the prayer. However, both the language and the style are different from the other poems of Colonimus. In addition, there is evidence that a very similar poem was being recited in Italy contemporaneously with Colonimus in Mainz. Scholarship tells us that a poem was discovered in the Cairo Geniza, a collection of old um, prayer books and texts in Cairo, and dated to the 8th century, almost 200 years before Amnon, while middle, medieval history testifies amply to the intense persecution of Jews by Christian at the times of the Crusade, which is when this uh, story purports that this poem was written, there are difficulties with the legend that it was composed by Amnon. Not least of these is its portrayal of Amnon as an illustrious Torah giant, while Jewish history of the period records no record of Rav Amnon of Mainz at all it seems unlikely that a person of such tremendous stature would be remembered only in a single legend. Scholars have long known that there is no historical foundation for the story, and that the story may have been inspired or derived from the Christian legend associated with St. Emram of Regensburg. However, the discovery of the Prayer within the earliest strata of the Cairo niza dating to the end century, makes it almost impossible that the prayer could be composed as the legend contends. Also, as I indicated earlier, some scholars see parallels with non Jewish hymnology, suggesting that elements of the prayer stem from other sources. It is possible that Rabbi Amnon's story was entirely invented, not necessarily by the author of. Or Zarua, another medieval poem. Um, indications of this are the absence of evidence of the existence of Rab Amnon, the fact that the name Amnon is a variant for the Hebrew word for faithful, the exa- extravagance of the story, the conspicuous inclusion of Colonimus at the end, and evidence that this was um, somewhat similar to those already used in previous times. So all of this is to say that the most powerful prayer on the holy days, which asks us to consider that we stand in judgment before God and that we are helpless um, to mitigate God's decrees, but we have great power great power, to deal with our life before the decree is offered. Who by fire and who by water? Who in the sunshine, who in the nighttime? Who by very slow decay, who shall I say is calling? Well, in the Jewish tradition, we say that God is calling. And we say that it is our obligation and our opportunity on the holy days to commit ourselves To prayer, to repentance, and to tzedakah as a means of living a life that mitigates against the uncertainty, the devastating uh, events that potentially destroy our lives. For Jewish faith and Jewish facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom. You can listen to a re recording of this on iTunes as a podcast or on the CHRI website. Shalom.